As you can see on the screen, the, the question for this morning is, are we supposed to speak out on behalf of the oppressed? You might think the answer to that question is rather obvious, and you might be right about that, but that's only part of the issue. Um, I, I think it's also important not only to think through our responsibility towards those who are oppressed, but it's also quite critical to understand even what oppression means, where it comes from, how much we should prioritize this work and the grand scheme of God's calling on our life as his church. And so I, I don't want to merely answer this question. What I, what I want to do is I want to try to give you a little more, a, a more robust theology about oppression itself and then our responsibility to help people who are under the weight of injustice around us. I'm going to trace this theme of oppression and injustice in the book of Isaiah. So if you would grab your Bibles and turn to Isaiah, you could just turn to chapter 1. That's where we're going to start. Grab a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the seats near you. Grab one of those. Turn to Isaiah. It's right in the middle of your Bible. Like all prophetic books, Isaiah was written because something was wrong. God's people, those whom God loved, those whom God saved, they had rejected God. They had turned away from him. And now a reckoning is coming. They have to answer to God. And that's the message of the prophets. And in chapter 1, Isaiah summarizes, he summarizes both the problem and the solution that he's going to go explain throughout the rest of this rather long book. There's 66 chapters to the book of Isaiah. And he doesn't waste any time. He gets right to the the heart of the matter in chapter 1. He touches on their sin, emphasizing how they've turned away from God, how they've turned away from his way and his rule. He spends some time criticizing their worship because it's all show. It doesn't come from their heart. And then in verse 16, he tells them what they should be doing differently. He tells them how they should be living differently. You see there in, in verse 16, he says, wash yourselves, meaning Turn away from these evil deeds. Clean yourselves. And then look at verse 17. Look what, how he describes a life that is following after God. Verse 17, he says, Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So right away here in chapter 1, you see God, including this idea of correcting oppression and pursuing justice as, a, as an integral part of walking well with him. And we're going to see that going forward, but that should be a pretty big clue as to how God sees the importance of pursuing this kind of justice for those who are, who are disadvantaged. Now let me take a step back here for a minute and address maybe a a larger point. Some of you, I'm guessing, have heard of this word shalom. That's a Hebrew word. 
It's most often translated as peace uh, in our English language, but peace doesn't quite capture the richness and the depth of this word shalom. Shalom describes flourishing and wholeness that comes when you submit yourselves to God. This flourishing can be experienced both both individually and, and corporately as well. And so in a home, for example, it looks like a husband and a wife happy in their service to one another. It looks like parents and children understanding the roles that God has given to them, parents laying down their lives, serving the best interests of their children and, and their children being obedient to their parents, believing that, that mom and dad have the best in mind for them. In a society, you would see governing officials providing servant leadership to those in their charge. You would find a, a citizenry gladly obeying the laws of a nation, knowing that it's fair for their good and, and looking to help their neighbor as best as possible. People with differing opinions and backgrounds would work together for the common good while celebrating their differences and appreciating one another. And of course, individually, it would look like a person who is content in what God has given to them. Healthy, both of mind and heart and body. Everyone, of course, would be submitting themselves to God together. Friends, that's a a picture of what shalom would look like. And so one way of thinking about sin is the vandalism of shalom. It's an attack on this peace, this flourishing, this blessing that God intends for individuals and for the common good of a society. And I don't know about your assessment of this, but, but I would argue that we're kind of in short supply of some shalom around here. You know, when, we, when you're in short supply of shalom, people prioritize self-love instead of love of neighbor, love of God. And so much of what I had mentioned earlier, it, it seems like we're in... We're lacking both in our personal and public lives. And even sadder, friends, we as a church, sometimes we fail to advance this shalom of God in the world because we too are, we take on this posture of passivity and and indifference and selfishness. We can contribute, unfortunately, to the decay of what's happening around us instead of being a part of the solution, which of course is what, what God is calling us to do. Now, what's the point of what I'm sharing with you? Well, this is where oppression comes from. Oppression is a consequence of people abandoning God. Oppression is a, is a consequence of people vandalizing this shalom of God. When shalom is destroyed, the powerful prey on the weak. And we see this actually in Isaiah chapter 3. And so just maybe flip a few pages to Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3, the prophet is highlighting the consequences when shalom is not pursued and prioritized. Listen to the first five verses of of chapter 3 of Isaiah. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away 
from Jerusalem and from Judah, support and supply. Meaning, like, this is a consequence of, this is God's judgment on the people for their rebellion. All support of bread, all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician, and the expert in charms, meaning everyone, everyone around you, everyone in the society, he is saying, listen to verse 4, and I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. What he means by that is, he's saying that your, your society is, being, is going to be so decimated and decayed that, that, that there's not going to be found any wisdom. Imagine being ruled by toddlers. Imagine being governed by infants who, who don't even have the capacity to, to think and reason through these hard situations. That's what's going to happen in your, in your community, in your nation, because you've turned your back on God. And then verse 5, and the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow, and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honorable. So here's this picture of the consequences of a, of a world caught up in sin, and we see this, even part of the judgment of God, how oppression will, will blossom, sadly. Micah brings up the same thing in his prophetic book. In Micah chapter 7, God says, don't trust your neighbor. Don't trust your neighbor. Have no confidence, he says, in your friends. Wow, in a, in a shalom-deprived world, he is saying nobody can be trusted. This is where oppression comes from. Which should tell you, my good brothers and sisters, how important it is for us, the church of Jesus Christ, to turn the tide of that direction, that movement, to give a world a picture of what it looks like to have the, the power of Jesus Christ living inside of us individually, but also us as a community of God, how we can serve one another, how we can lift up those who are vulnerable rather than praying on them. We have such a powerful witness, friends, in our world today if we would implement the path of Christ in our lives and put away the selfishness that's so easy to give ourselves to. You know, oftentimes, and rightly so, we conceive of sin as, as breaking God's law, as this is this vertical dimension, this vertical break. And that's certainly true, that all of our sin is first an offense to God. We first break his law. David says in Psalm 51, Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And by which I think he means that, that the greatest offense that he, he, of his sin was that he, he committed this act of, of transgression against God. But yet at the same time, friends, it's also true that our sin does contribute to the vandalism of the peace of God in this world. Our, our sin does perpetuate oppression. And so when a, when a father ridicules and berates his son, he's not merely sinning against God and his law. He is doing that, but he's sinning against his son. He's being an oppressor. When an employer mistreats her employees, she's being an oppressor. I know it's been a long time, but I, I always think of those Enron executives fudging the numbers and then, 
and then selling high and, and running while their employees lose everything. That's oppressive. When a, a coach mistreats a, a kid out of anger. So yes, indeed, sin is law-breaking, falling short of God's glory, but it's also theft and murder, adultery against other people made in the image of God. And that vandalizes, again, this idea of wholeness, this peace, this shalom of God. Isaiah 59 picks up on these themes. So flip to Isaiah chapter 59, going towards the end of of this book. Again, I said there's 66 chapters in Isaiah. Towards the end, in chapter 59, the prophet is picking up on this theme of the sins of a nation Not just breaking God's law, but hurting other people. Hurting other people around them. Listen to some of these selective verses. Look at verses 7 and 8. Their feet run to evil and they they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows knows peace. Jumping over to verse 12, look at, starting in verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, the prophet says, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and Denying the Lord, turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs From evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. How utterly scary, friends, it would be to live through a time where you have to do evil to keep yourself safe. That's I'm getting that from verse 15 there. Do you see that there in the beginning of verse 15? Truth is lacking, he says. And, and he who departs from evil, meaning he who doesn't commit evil, he who, who refuses to do evil, makes himself a prey. I remember uh, when we had some global partners working in Romania and how they would come back and tell us just how corrupt the government was there in Romania. And how you could not get anything done. You cannot get the permits. You cannot get the approvals. You cannot get the certifications without bribing and scheming. And so here you are, caught in this dilemma. Well, do we participate? Do we continue on in this, 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 this process of evil to get the permits that we need and the certifications that we need? Or do we not? And then we, we're cut off. And we make ourselves even more vulnerable. Friends, that is a community where shalom has been vandalized. Now, I don't mean to be overly depressing about this stuff, but oppression will not be eradicated on this side of heaven. As long as 
the present age exists with its powers of darkness, we'll always see humans taking advantage of one another. But while we won't be able to eradicate oppression from this earth ourselves, like I mentioned before, friends, we can be a light in the darkness. We can be a, an instrument of grace and truth where there's, where there's lies and deceit. As we pray, come Lord Jesus, I'm thinking of Paul in 1 Corinthians at the very end of the book. He says, come Lord Jesus. And when, the, when our Lord Jesus comes, he will make everything right. And in the meantime, friends, we can give people a picture, a little, a little picture of what heaven on earth would look like by making sure that we practice the kind of righteousness and care and, and love for others and love for God that God is calling us to. Now again, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help shape some of your thinking around what oppression looks like, what it means from the scriptures, and so something else to, to include in your theology, your thinking about oppression, is that this is something that the powerful do to the weak. There are instances in the scriptures where oppression is used in rather general terms as harm done one to another, and then in that way, then everyone can be an oppressor. But more often, the Bible will talk about the oppression as abusive treatment from those who have against those who do not have. Oppression is how the powerful hurt the weak to stay powerful and to keep the weak down. And as an example of this, like, for example, uh, Leviticus chapter 19, 13 and 14 read this way, a command of God, you shall not oppress your neighbor or, or rob him. So think about, don't oppress your neighbor. Well, how might you do that? Well, here's how. The wages of hired workers shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God I am the Lord. Now, what I'm trying to illustrate with this passage is notice who the workers are. Notice who the deaf and the blind are. These are people who are vulnerable. These are people who are, who are um, in a position of, of dependency on the help of others and who could easily be taken advantage of. And so, uh, you know, the warning given to the nation of Israel, of course, we should hear that warning ourselves right now. Fear God, First Baptist. The Lord is an avenger to those who are vulnerable. And so when you, again, when you think about a theology of oppression, be mindful of the power dynamics at play. Those in positions of power have a unique opportunity to take advantage of others. And God, of course, says that is not okay. And so I thought, well, let's think about this. What are, what are some areas in our world today where we see these kinds of imbalances of power? And I don't mean imbalances in that, that they're inappropriate. Sometimes, a lot of times, those imbalances of power are appropriate. It's the misuse of the power that's, that's wrong. And so certainly, for example, you see in places of employment, there are those structures in place. If you are an employer... If you are a manager, if you are a supervisor of, of people, you have a unique influence over those who work for you. Certainly by the fact that you cut them a paycheck, but even 
in more ways than not. Than, than not. Um, I, uh, I know very well that those of you who are in a management position or you, you're a business owner, you have a, a, a very unique way of either making life a blessing for those who work with you or, or a real drag, a real curse, a real curse. And we've seen examples already in the, in the scriptures this morning, but there's a lot of passages in the Bible that really focus on this idea of economic justice where we're told that, say, a landowner is not to withhold the wages of those who work for them, basically depriving them of their income. That's a form of oppression. Another example. You know, when I send my, when my, when I send my kids to school, I send them telling them, and they know that they are to respect and be submissive to their teachers. I don't know how, if, how well they're doing that, but that's the message I tell them. And so I, I, I think of you teachers out there. You know, you could take advantage of that. You school administrators or leaders, you could take advantage of not only the, the power difference at play between you and a, a student, but even the, the words of a dad telling my sons to be submissive, and you could use that to your advantage rather than for the advantage of, of the students in your classrooms. I know some of you work in law enforcement or you have family or friends in law enforcement. Thank God for our public servants and their dedication to the good of our community. We don't pay them enough and so we should at least make sure we give them our thanks and and our respect. And those in law enforcement, I'm thinking of the whole system. You're thinking of district attorneys and judges and police officers. They have incredible power. They're given this responsibility to adjudicate justice. And I'm thankful that it's, it's rare that we'd find these, these public servants who would be serving themselves rather than serving the good of the, of the communities in which they live in. But it does happen. And because they carry such a big stick, it's particularly damaging and despicable when there's a miscarriage of justice. For the selfish gain. And that's why we see it on the news. And sometimes maybe it feels like, boy, it, it feels out of proportion. And you know, it, it, it doesn't happen as often as may we, we may think it does. But because it's such a miscarriage of justice, it's a pretty big deal. Those also in a prime position to oppress would be those governing officials. You know, God says in the scriptures that the state, those in a governing position, they, they're given the sword of God to execute justice by force, by coercion. And so, you know, when when you're able to legitimately coerce others, boy, if you're not in it for the good of others, especially the, the good of those in a vulnerable position, you can do a lot of harm. And then on top of that, think about the kind of government that we have here in the nation that we reside in. We have a system of government by the people. For the people. You know, when you live in a monarchy or, or a dictatorship, it's pretty easy to blame the king or to blame the tyrant. But what if you live in a democratic republic where, where the people have a say? Where the people play a role in what's happening in our society? Now, that might be fodder for a lively debate that we can't get into this morning. You can have that, of course, over lunchtime. 
But what it does for me, it makes me wonder, what am I complicit in? And maybe my either passivity or neglect. And these are very difficult questions, of course, but I'm trying to point out for you, my friends, are the places that we are responsible to God. Places that we're responsible to God for. And so let's talk about that. Let's talk about that question. What is our responsibility? As followers of Jesus, what should, be, what should we be doing with the possible injustices around us? Well, the first and obvious one is this. Don't perpetuate or practice oppression. Don't be an oppressor yourself. That's the first and best way to stop oppression in our world today. Your oppressive behavior is, without a doubt, that which you are most accountable to God for. One of uh, a secular author that I, I read and pay attention to is a guy named Jordan Peterson. One of his 12 rules for life is this. He says, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. And the emphasis of this rule is his recognition that you'll only be good out there in the world to the degree that you can experience some good in your own life. How do you go and change the world when you can't change or experience a change on the inside? And I, I hear that focus in these passages in Isaiah. And so when God says in Isaiah chapter 1, for example, to correct oppression, well, whose oppression do you think he's telling them to correct? Their own. He's saying, correct your oppression. That's what you should be focusing on. Change. You change the life of a nation by changing the inside of you. He wasn't saying, go correct the oppression of the Syrians. No, no, he's saying, you go correct your own. And so, friends, that starts with us. And, of course, we only experience that help through this inner transformation that Jesus Christ does in a life, changing, changing us to love God and others rather than loving ourselves. And so pursuing justice, refusing to practice or participate in oppression is a baseline requirement for a follower of Jesus. I'm reminded of a passage we've been studying in the book of James, right? During our Sunday school hour, us adults, James 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If you're going to take advantage of orphans and widows, those those who are vulnerable, you might as well stay home on a Sunday morning. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Like there's no sense in singing songs of praise to God. There's no reason to give offerings to him. God despises our worship when we fail to do what is right and good to those who are in need of help. You know, that's one of the things that's really explicit in the prophets. The Lord says it is a stench. Their offerings are a stench to him when they go on and carry on these carriages of of injustice. And so it's important for us, friends, again, as an expression of our worship and devotion to God, that we would not be practicing or participating in oppression. And so while not practicing oppression is the baseline, I would say that correcting oppression outside of us isn't 
our primary calling as a church. You know, as I read my New Testament, I do not see a a huge emphasis or a focus given by God to the church to make this their primary work. The primary work that God has given the church is to make disciples. The primary work that that Christ has given his church is to tell other people the good news of Jesus so that they realize and see that there is forgiveness for their sins and when God does that inner transformation in their own heart and life, that they, they live a life that's renewed by God and his Holy Spirit so that they, again, stop being an oppressor themselves and start loving others, loving God more than they love themselves and making sacrifices to bless everybody whom God brings into their, into their life. We're to keep teaching the faithful, the truth of God, so that we might be a worthy witness of Christ as the pressures and temptations mount in our lives. That's the focus, I would say, is, is the, of the New Testament. Now, I understand the urge to do something when we see oppression. You know, we've got to do something to help the lives of the unborn. And a prophetic voice is needed when and where racism exists. Even in our political discourse, as ugly and as repulsive as it is to many of us, hey, the the character of Christ is needed in those places. And the righteousness of Christ. But I would just say, that's not our primary mission field. It's not our first work. It's one that we can't neglect, but it's not our primary focus. That's one of the reasons why you don't hear me mention the weekly headlines a lot from the platform. I don't want to bury my head in the sand. I'm, I'm aware of them as much as you are. But at the same time, what I, here's what I want to do. I don't want our eyes to be stuck on the things of the earth. I want us, our eyes to be above that, to keep, our, keep a heavenly perspective so that we can see clearly not just the things that matter for eternity, but the things that matter on the earth right here. And to do that well, I think we have to set our minds on things above and to keep our focus on the primary calling of, of our church, which is to keep pressing and encouraging people with the good news of Jesus Christ, which makes an inner transformation. And when the, when the inner transformation takes place in the lives of, of men and women, guess what happens? A societal change takes place too. And so should we speak out on behalf of the oppressed? Yes, we should. We should. More so, we shouldn't be practicing oppression. We should not be participating in it ourselves. And when and where God calls us to step up and intervene, we should make sure we do that while we keep making disciples of Jesus Christ our primary calling. 